Before we come to God's Word, we have an opportunity to profess our faith together. And I would encourage you as you do so in a moment using the Apostles' Creed to remind yourself that your identity is most fundamentally as one who has been bought by the blood of Christ, that quite honestly you have His name stamped upon you. You're a Christian. You bear His name. And so with that in mind, and again using the Apostles' Creed, I ask you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. At this time, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn uh, into your bulletins to page 10 or also in your scriptures to John chapter 11, and any children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Adults, you can go too, they just might send you back, but you know. Again, the scripture for this morning is on page 10 in your bulletin. You can use a pew Bible or your own Bible. We'll be reading from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. It reads, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it remains forever. Amen. Here at Lake Osborne, we've been journeying through uh, John's gospel 
And we've been doing it so in a series I've titled, That You May Believe. And we take that statement, in fact, you hear Christ mention it again here, but we take that statement from John's own purpose for writing in John chapter, chapter 20. But as we've been journeying together through this gospel, one specific theme has risen to the surface, and it's this theme of God in the ministry of Christ Jesus literally recreating the world. He's making all things new. And you see it from the very beginning. In John chapter one, as we know, it opens with this Genesis-like language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right from the beginning, we see in the person of Christ Jesus, God is remaking things. He's remaking the world. But as it continues into the, the chapters that follow, you also see in the ministry of Christ, him doing things that, that indicate he is turning back the curse. He is restoring things to their proper order. He's healing. He's raising. He's ministering to the sick and the diseased and the downtrodden. So he's turning back things to their original state, to their original order before sin fractured everything. He's also pointing forward to the new creation, to the shalom that will eventually settle over all when sin and death and sickness and disease and tears and hardship are put down once and for all. He's making all things new. And you see it here again in chapter 11 which will culminate in Jesus giving his fifth I am statement where he'll eventually say, I am the resurrection and the life. And we see that, of course, because Jesus will quite literally remake the personal world of this single man, Lazarus. He'll recreate the personal world of this man, Lazarus. And so, spoiler alert, he gets raised, all right, he gets resurrected at the end. You had 2,000 years to hear about it, all right, so sorry. Denzel Washington movies, Liam Neeson movies always end with a bad guy getting theirs, all right? Jesus always ends funerals with a resurrection, all right? He doesn't do them. So spoiler alert, Lazarus will be raised. But while this story cannot be uh, pulled apart from its ending, it has to be considered in light of the ending, we only, for time's sake this morning, have the beginning here and now. But even here in the beginning of this incredible chapter, we see three realities about Christ Jesus. And again, if you're someone who has followed Christ for years, or if you're someone who is perhaps this morning just exploring who he is and what he's done for the first time, there are three realities we must focus on here in this text. Three realities about Christ Jesus, and the three are this. That Jesus is available. Jesus is available. Secondly, Jesus answers. And thirdly, Jesus awakens. Jesus is available, Jesus answers, and Jesus awakens. Let's consider them in turn. Jesus is available. You know, whether it's crisis prevention hotlines, uh, whether it's 911 or, or emergency room access, we all take great comfort in knowing that in our times of greatest need, we're heard. In our times of greatest need, there's some place or somewhere, there's someone to whom we can turn. If you're like me and you were raised in a city, then going places off the beaten path where you know, cell phone coverage wanes is terrifying to me, all right? Terrifying. 
If I go into the mountains or the country, I'm not at peace, I'm nervous, okay? The whole time. My in-laws live in the mountains and it's the kind of place where at night you can sleep with the doors unlocked and the windows open, you can hear the brook babbling, it's up in North Carolina. I lay there just eyes wide open the whole time, okay? I go and get the key underneath their mat, literally, when I'm there, and I take it with me, okay? That's a dumb idea. A key under a mat, I don't care where you live, okay? Uh, honestly, though, I get, I, get, I get nervous, all right? Who's gonna hear me if I cry? It's, we're too remote, okay? It's too off the beaten path. My phone's not working. I get nervous, I get nervous. Where will I turn? Who to, who, to whom will I cry? Well, here in verses one through three, we see through Mary and Martha's urgent message to Jesus that in the most profound of senses, Jesus is always available to our cry, always available to our need. That the Lord of all creation will always incline his ear to those who cry out to him. That no, no distance is too far, no place too remote, no desperation too deep. He hears you, he hears me this morning. Furthermore, no petition brought to Jesus, no petition brought to he who is making all things new is too petty, too small. No prayer, no petitioner is too unknown, too insignificant or unnoticed. In fact, we see even that in Jesus' willingness to answer, that his, his willingness to answer isn't even based on the proficiency of our asking. Notice how Mary and Martha come to him with any, or devoid of all pretense. No polish, no even elaboration on the problem. They don't attempt to coerce Jesus or manipulate Jesus. They don't make promises of increased devotion or increased piety in their life should he choose to answer. They simply come to him with this unadorned request, the bare bones, the, the bare facts. Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick, and they lay this simple petition, no elevated prayer language, this simple petition at his feet. Their unadorned request seems to highlight what they know to be true in Psalm 139. What does it say? It says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. You see, their, their humble petition, their simple petition to Jesus embodies what we know he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, what he teaches in the Lord's Prayer, that no heaping up of words and phrases give you greater, give me greater audience. There's no $20 bill in our prayer we can slip you know, to the maitre d' in heaven that gets us closer to the front of the line. No, no. We come unadorned. He knows our needs before we even ask. We come simply, we come humbly, but we come boldly. It reminds me of my kids, and some of you who have kids can probably relate. Uh, they love mac and cheese. It's, it's like all the food groups together, okay? Mac and cheese, breakfast, lunch, dinner. But they want the simple stuff. Give them the craft out of the box, you know? Powdered cheese. Mmm, right? You bring the pecorino and the gorgonzola and the panko breadcrumbs and it's, they find it disgusting, 
you know? Don't complicate it. Craft, powdered cheese, out of the box. They love it. They love it. In a, in a sense, this is Christ here. This is Mary and Martha here, bringing the simple request to the Lord of all, the Lord who knows all. In fact, as we know later, Paul tells us in Romans that even when we don't know what to ask, the Lord inter intercedes, he intervenes. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with the groanings too deep for words. Jesus is available. The Lord of all creation is available. Again, not because of our proficiency, not because of our qualifications, not because of our resumes, but simply because, like Lazarus, we are one whom he loves. We are one who Sally Lloyd-Jones in her great Jesus Storybook Bible says that we are held with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And so the question is, what can we lay at Christ's feet this morning? What can we bring to him unadorned, simply, but with the assurance that he's heard us, that he loves us? Jesus answers. Jesus answers. He's not just available, but secondly, he answers. The difficulty, though, and we see it in this text, is that Jesus' answer, though, to our prayers, his answer to our requests, don't always take the shape or the schedule that we hope for. It doesn't always work that way. If you notice, as you keep reading, Jesus seems to inexplicably delay his visit. He says the sickness that Lazarus faces will not lead to death, but then it seemingly does. He hears the urgent news and he waits two days, two days. He hears the news and he, you know, he rebooks the, the Hampton Inn, Jordan River, another night. If there's any Seinfeld fans here, I'm not sure if those references still apply, any Seinfeld fans here, this is like Elaine stopping for Juji fruit before visiting her friend at the hospital, all right? He delays, he delays, and it's seemingly inexplicable, inexplicable. Now on one hand, if, if you're someone who's perpetually late, and I would fall into that category, then this is a great comfort to you, all right? There's at least one area in your life where you're Christ-like, okay? <laughs> I mean, at least one, right? We can all agree on that. He's late. He's late. Why? The lateness to, to Mary and Martha, the lateness to, to Lazarus is of no comfort. In fact, it's seemingly downright insensitive. I mean, if you notice in, in verse five, John seems to go out of his way to reassure us that Christ actually loves them. Look again. He tells us the situation. Verse five, now Jesus really does love Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard, he waits. How does that work? John makes it sound like it's actually evidence of Christ's love for the family. Now Jesus loved, so when he heard, he waited. Because Jesus loved, when he heard, he waited. How does this work? How can that actually be so? 
we see here it's so because the answer, the answer to our afflictions, the answer to our askings, will always be that which brings God greatest glory. Will always be that which brings God greatest glory and us the greatest good. Always. Always. Though the, the, the form of it doesn't always fit our preconceived notions or our preconceived understandings. Furthermore, we see that God is fundamentally committed <clears throat> to working in ways that will produce faith and deeper trust in him. Always. He, he's, he's committed to working in ways that make it obvious the only way out is up. Up. Again, look at or consider uh, Psalm 139. We read it a minute ago. You hem me in behind and before. Think of Israel. Crossing the Red Sea, walls of water on either side. The only way out is from above. The only way out is up. Psalm 139 also says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light to you. The only way out is up. He wants to produce a deeper faith, a deeper trust in us. Think of Gideon and his ridiculously undersized army. Think of Elisha dousing the wood upon the altar that God would call down fire to, dousing it with water, soaking it beyond measure so that it's obvious only God will answer. <clears throat> Think of Christ, I mean, feeding a multitude with what amounts to Smoked fish dip and some French bread. I mean, it's meager, meager, feeding a multitude. The only way out is through his miraculous intervention. He will work in ways that seem counterintuitive so that he alone gets the credit. And of course, we see it here, and we'll see it even more fully in, later in the chapter with Lazarus. But before we go further, make sure we understand Make sure we understand that when, when God does this, when he works in ways that want to provoke faith from us, he doesn't, he doesn't do it before he loves us. He doesn't want to produce faith in us as a prerequisite for his love. No, it comes after he's already declared his affection for us. Who did he say Lazarus is? Mary and Martha are as well, ones whom he loves ones whom he loves. His love always precedes our response, always. This is why John makes it plain again how much Jesus already loves the family. But we also see here that this, this faith-producing technique on the part of Jesus, the way that he chooses to answer, has an amazing way of wielding events and circumstances that seem to be negative for a greater good, for the greater glory. Notice where the request from Mary and Martha comes from. It comes from Bethany. Bethany. Bethany is a village a mere two miles from Jerusalem. A village, in fact, dangerously close to where Jesus just was 
at the end of the last chapter. At the end of the last chapter, Jesus had to flee Jerusalem because he was accused of blasphemy. He was almost stoned. And so here then we see this request now comes from Bethany, two miles from where he just was. And there seems to be this reluctance then on his part to return. And so while we know that, that God's, or Jesus' is waiting is, is ultimately for God's glory, on the human side of understanding, what seems to happen here? It seems that a negative event has won the day. That Jesus being expelled from Jerusalem and now reluctant to return has actually caused him to wait. And in the waiting, what happens? Lazarus dies. It seems like evil won the day. This evil negative event, keeping Jesus where he's at, leads now to Lazarus dying. But no, how do we understand it? When filtered through the lens of God's sovereignty, the evil which, which prompts the waiting, which then prompts the dying, it fits right into God's plan, right into God's perfect schedule so that a greater miracle can be effected. Which is why later, when Christ actually comes to the tomb, he appears to come four days late, only to what? Be right on time. Only to be right on time. Friends, this is a passage where we see the truth of Isaiah, that God's ways are always higher than our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. We see the truth of Paul in 1 Corinthians, that no eye has seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We see Paul in Ephesians tell us that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask. Jesus is available. Jesus answers. But then thirdly and finally, we see that his ability to do abundantly more than all we can ask is found here in the fact that Jesus has come to awaken us. He's come to awaken us. He's come to awaken us to the desperation of our true situation. The desperation of our true situation. But then also he wants to awaken us to the strength of his deliverance. To the strength of his deliverance. Again, notice that Lazarus' sisters believe the greatest threat to Lazarus is his illness. And Christ's disciples believe the greatest threat to them was hostility of the, the local authorities. That's why they're bewildered when Jesus announces his return to Judea. They're, they're, they're bewildered. But Jesus puts both in perspective here by informing everyone who will listen of a greater threat, of a greater need. That's why, again, we're down now towards the end of the section, that's why Jesus says what at first seems callous. That Lazarus has died and he's actually somewhat glad about it. It seems, it seems callous. It's why that he also points out that, that Lazarus isn't just sleeping. He's not just enjoying you know, the NyQuil, all right? And Jesus isn't this weird guy who just has this thing for going and waking up sick people, okay? like he lacks all bedside manner. No, he's doing these counterintuitive you know, things to show that there is a greater threat to Lazarus. There's a greater threat to the disciples. There's a greater need. 
And it all sets the stage then for him to make it most plain, to, to work this greatest miracle, to enlighten all around him that he has come with a much, much greater mission than even physical healings. The greater threat, as we know, is that of death and the tomb as a result of our sin apart from God. But we're, we're told here the strength to face that threat is knowing the one who himself will go through death, who himself will seem to have been defeated by evil, who himself will seem to inexplicably delay for three days, only to be right on time, only to rise victoriously over death. And he extends that same destiny to us this morning. You see, it's precisely because he has vanquished, he has conquered that greater threat. He has come and he's met that deeper need that we can now come to him with any of our lesser threats, any of our lesser needs, sickness, hardship, difficulty, uncertain futures, anxieties, worries. And knowing, as he tells his disciples, that we have the light of the world with us. That no darkness is too deep, no darkness is too profound, but we have the light of the world with us. And our hope, our hope this day and forevermore, is that if God did not spare his son, as we know, but he gave himself up for us willingly, then will he not, along with him, give us all things? Do you know this Jesus this morning? I pray that you do. I pray that some here might believe for the very first time. And I pray for others that your belief, your trust, will only be made that much more profound this morning as we all bask in the reality that we are ones whom Jesus loves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we can't help but, but praise you. Can't help but once again say thank you. Thank you that you would reach down into our darkness and send the light. That you would reach down into our death and take it upon yourself and give us life and life abundant. And so God, I pray this morning that whether we call Lake Osborne our church home, whether we call Truth Point our church home, whether we're in church for the first time, I pray that we would leave here knowing that unbreakable love, the love that chases us even to the tomb, and that we might leave here knowing that we can bring anything before you, anything. Because if you loved us enough to conquer death and you love us in the midst of our chaotic and difficult lives. And so God, we pray that we would leave here again assured of your grace and your mercy and your love. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.